It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. A year and a half ago, white nationalists rallied in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a counter-protester was killed. The event changed the conversation around hate speech. First Amendment champion and former ACLU president Nadine Strassen says that speech, as painful as it may be, is justifiably protected. Instead of imposing rules, she favors fighting hate speech with free speech. Any use of our own free speech rights to raise our voices in ways that will actually counter either the underlying ideas that are conveyed in hateful speech or their potential adverse impact. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. For her book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, Nadine Strassen researched nearly every attempt to impose restrictions on hate speech around the world and on college campuses. She found all of them are flawed. Should rules be drawn up to outlaw demeaning, disparaging, and degrading speech directed at certain groups? How can we resist hate while protecting free speech? And what's the best way to deal with hate speech online on platforms like Facebook and Twitter? Strassen, who teaches at New York Law School, speaks with Connor Friedersdorf. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. Their conversation was held June 26, 2018. Here's Friedersdorf. You'll sometimes hear people insist that hate speech is not free speech. It's a phrase that's kind of going around um, as if there's a hate speech exception to the First Amendment. And you'll hear other people speak as if all hate speech is protected. Uh, in fact, neither of those things is quite true. So to start with the basics, what do people mean when they say hate speech? Most people use the term hate speech, and I'll use air quotes once, imagine them from now on. It's not a legally recognized term of art. The Supreme Court never has defined a category of speech based on its hateful or hated content and said, for that reason, it is excluded from First Amendment protection. But in everyday speech, we constantly hear the term used for whatever speech or idea the person using this stigmatizing term hates. Uh, I use the term the way it is usually used, which is to describe speech that conveys hateful or discriminatory or stereotyped ideas on the basis of certain characteristics, uh, in particular race, religion, gender, so forth, that uh, sexual orientation that traditionally have been subject to discrimination. And so we can all think of instances that you could call hate speech that are constitutionally protected, and we all understand that. I hate Donald Trump. Uh, even I hate Donald Trump because he's an old man, if we we're going to invoke some of his identity categories. What categories of hate speech are not protected by the First Amendment? So every kind of speech is protected based on its idea. The Supreme Court has over and over and over again unanimously, for all of its disagreement on so many other issues, including so many other free speech issues, 
Even the current court uh, last summer unanimously reaffirmed that no idea may be censored merely because we loathe its viewpoint, no matter how deeply we despise it, no matter how widely abhorred it is. Its content is never a basis for justifying censorship. However, if you look beyond content to context, all speech, including speech with a hateful message, may be censored if, in the particular context, it directly causes certain imminent, specific, serious harm, such as a genuine threat such as intentional incitement of imminent violence, such as targeted harassment or bullying. So can you think of an example that most people would consider hate speech that has been punished and in in a manner that was constitutionally all right to punish because it fell in one of these categories you mentioned? Well, sadly, the first example that occurs to me is something that happened at American University a little bit more than a year ago where the first African-American female student body president, uh, Taylor Dumpson, was taking office and on that morning distributed around campus were a series of bananas that were slung in nooses. I still get chills when I, when I think of that description uh, because it does instill a reasonable fear of uh, being subject to attack, uh, which is the definition of a punishable true threat. To make the threat even more pointed, uh, a number of the bananas contained, had written on them the initials of her sorority, which is a predominantly African-American sorority. So that clearly was a punishable true threat. Moreover, this is a really important point to add, Connor, even though there is no constitutionally accepted concept of punishable hate speech based on its message. There is an accepted concept of hate crime or bias crime. When you take something that already is a crime, such as an assault or vandalism, in this case a threat, where the victim is singled out for a discriminatory reason, in this case race and or gender, that can be treated as a more serious crime subject to enhanced punishment on the rationale that it does more harm both to the individual victim and to society as a whole. So Washington, D.C., police, and I believe the FBI also were investigating that as a hate crime as well as a threat. And so these categories of threats and other constitutionally unprotected speech fall outside the purview of your book, uh, which focuses on speech that's currently constitutionally protected. And we're going to get to a kind of deeper dive into that in a minute. But uh, one thing that I like about the title of your book, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, is that uh, I do think it's incumbent on civil libertarians, uh, both of us consider ourselves civil libertarians, uh, to resist hate in addition to making the argument that sometimes hate speech should be constitutionally protected. So what are some of the ways um, that we ought to resist 
hate, in your view, other than censoring constitutionally protected And, and that is the bottom line message of my book. It is the only verb in the title. I think all of us have a responsibility, especially those of us who are opposed to censorship, to do what is effective. And I've already mentioned uh, one example, which we should not take for granted, because it has not always been done in the U.S. or in other societies. And that is very seriously punishing uh, violence that is discriminatory in in its nature. Uh, we should also not take for granted seriously enforcing laws that prohibit actual discrimination in employment, housing, and other sectors. Not every society does that. Uh, my book, because it is emphasizing free speech, really stresses uh, what lawyers sometimes call counter speech, and that is any use of our own free speech rights to raise our voices in ways that will actually counter either the underlying ideas that are conveyed in hateful speech uh, or their potential adverse impact. And one of the wonderful developments that we've seen recently is such a rising tide of resistance to hateful and hated messages that actually we're now having debates, including this week, over is there too much counter speech? Is there too much counter pressure being exerted against the the Roseanne bars and, and so forth of, of this world. So uh, to, to play devil's advocate, uh, perhaps there are people in this audience who think, well, of course we should have counter speech. Of course we should enforce anti-discrimination laws. Um, but we also need laws against hate speech because, and you know, these are some of the common arguments, um, some people think that these laws are necessary to protect the dignity of all individuals. Um, some people point out that in our society, hate speech uh, for practical purposes, disproportionately falls on groups that have been historically discriminated against. Um, some people think that restricting hate speech might stop fascists or white supremacists from gaining political power and doing the sorts of awful things we can imagine they would do with that power. Um, some people point to the murder of innocents, like an alt-right protester's murder of a protester in Charlottesville who was engaged in counter-speech and who was killed um, partly as a result of that. Um, Still others think that uh, hate speech like violence is psychologically damaging or even physiologically damaging. And your book tries to grapple with the strongest counterarguments for new restrictions that would tackle some of these things. Uh, so, so let's run through your counterarguments. Um, lots of other countries have passed laws against speech and expression. You've taken a look at them and, and studied intensely what their effects were. Tell us a little bit about the experiences of other countries and uh, the good and the bad of uh, the laws that they've passed. How's it worked out? Okay, so first of all, thank you for reciting the potential harms that can definitely uh, be threatened by hate speech. I do not in any way mean to minimize or trivialize those potential harms. They are very serious and they are of great concern to me personally as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor who barely made it uh, out of a concentration camp in Nazi Germany and also somebody who's been subject to anti-Semitic expression myself. And I understand not only the adverse psychological impact, physiological impact, but also another one I know you're aware of, Connor, which is a censorious 
impact, right? If we're subject to hateful speech, it tends to have a chilling or suppressive impact on our speech. So there are free speech concerns on both sides, and I I take these arguments very, very seriously. Uh, Yet I have concluded, based on examining the actual experience under hate speech laws around the world throughout history in our own country before the Supreme Court adopted its current speech protective policies. And I have concluded that um, well-intentioned as they are in actual operation, they are at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. And before I give you some of the details, I hasten to add that uh, it's not just me who has reached this conclusion. Throughout my book, I think it's especially important for me not to be preaching to people in other countries. So I was very surprised at the number of human rights activists in countries around the world and at international agencies in Europe and at the UN, uh, the number of minority rights activists and civil rights activists who have made this conclusion looking at how their own country's laws have actually operated. Uh, So what we see is that in Europe, for example, which has the strictest hate speech laws in the world, with the possible exception of the Middle East, uh, where these laws are very strictly enforced. So, for example, Le Monde, a mainstream uh, Paris newspaper, French newspaper, was criminally convicted for publishing an editorial that was critical of a policy of the Israeli government, of a particular policy. That was criminally punished as anti-Semitic hate speech. So I give this to you as an example of how strict these laws are, and yet staying with France as an example, and anti-Semitism as an example, there has been a distressing rise of anti-Semitic and anti-Roma and anti-immigrant and anti-refugee, not only rhetoric, but also action and crime in France and throughout Europe. So clearly the laws have not been effective in promoting tolerance and uh, combating even hateful violence, let alone speech. And and I could give you many, many other examples of that. Uh, Let me make one other generalization and then explain why these patterns that we see, and my book has many, many examples, uh, why they are predictable. But the other pattern that has been complained about, again, by experts in other countries and human rights activists, is that the laws are disproportionately enforced against not only all critics of government policies, all dissenters and dissidents, but also particularly tragically, disproportionately against the very minority groups that were intended to be protected. So, for example, a couple of years ago, uh, the head of the uh, a Parisian gay rights organization was criminally convicted under the hate speech law for using the word 
homophobe to describe the head of an anti-gay rights organization. Now, the reason why these patterns are predictable goes back to the very rationale of those who advocate for hate speech codes. And again, I completely support their, their rationale. They say, look, we still have a too much discrimination and bias in this country. It is endemic in our criminal justice system, in our civil justice system. We know from too many studies that all of us are subject to so-called implicit or unconscious bias as individuals. Study after study has demonstrated how uh, existing criminal laws, including the drug laws, are disproportionately enforced against young men of color. Why in the world would we expect that there would be an enforcement of these inherently subjective laws, right? Hate is an emotion. One person's hate <coughs> speech is somebody else's cherished speech. Why would we expect that discriminatory and biased individuals and systems would enforce these laws in a way that does anything other than perpetuate the status quo and not befriend marginalized or vulnerable minorities. Well, and this pattern that you found in other countries, uh, if I'm correct, you've also found in the experience of college campuses that uh, put hate speech codes into effect. Um, several of them were only in effect for a short time because they were struck down by the First Amendment. Uh, but in this brief window, we have a record of who was punished uh, by these hate speech codes and who wasn't. And could you run through the particulars there? Well, the, the most extensive record we have is from the University of Michigan, which was the first hate speech code adopted in the late 80s and early 90s uh, that was challenged in court. It was successfully challenged by the ACLU. And as a result of the litigation, we had access to the enforcement record, which otherwise would have been a matter of confidentiality. And uh, sadly, but uh, predictably, the only two times that the code was enforced against racist speech as opposed to speech that was discriminatory on another basis uh, or speech either in one case by an African-American student who called another student white trash that was hate speech that was punished. And the other was uh, speech by a white student, but he said he was speaking on behalf of his uh, minority roommate, African-American, who had heard that a particular course was, uh, that particular teacher was particularly hard on minority students. And that was treated as hate speech because the instructor was herself a member of a racial minority. Uh, I think also it's important to point out that under that code, there was only one student who was subject to the ultimate punishment, which was a full-fledged hearing and uh, very severe discipline. He was at least suspended. He may have been expelled. I'm sorry. I don't remember. And he was African-American. And in his plea for clemency, he said, this is not a coincidence. I think I'm being discriminated against on the basis of race. Certainly, I'm not saying that's necessarily correct, but certainly, given the inherent subjectivity of the concepts at issue, you know, speech that is demeaning or degrading or disparaging. There is so much unfettered discretion that's given to those who enforce the law. They certainly have the opportunity to enforce it in and discriminatory so let, let's ways. Let's dig into particulars a little bit here because speaking in generalities, you think, okay, we passed this code against hate speech on a college campus and people are presumably thinking about uh, 
racial and ethnic slurs. They're thinking about perhaps uh, misogynistic speech. Uh, but then we see the results that lots of people from uh, historically discriminated against groups wind up being the ones punished. What are they actually being punished for? Do you recall any cases of, you know, here's what someone said and it had this unexpected result? Well, I mean, you won't be surprised that a lot of the examples involve uh, minority people who are making statements to law enforcement uh, officials. So before the United States Supreme Court uh, enforced the current speech protective standards, we had this very loose concept uh, that was called fighting words, basically anything that was deemed to be insulting. Uh, And it did not have to pass the very strict tests that that now exist. And the vast majority of actual convictions for fighting words were minority men who were being arrested by police officers who said something insulting, uh, including uh, slurs against their whiteness, to police officers. We see the same thing in a, a, a related context today, Connor, where you have Facebook and Twitter and other online social media platforms in forming their standards against hate speech. And uh, for a number of years now, a large coalition of civil rights and civil liberties organizations, 77 groups to be precise, have complained that Facebook, for example, is enforcing its hate speech code in a way that discriminates against minority voices, in particular those who are resisting government policy, so that Black Lives Matter activism has been disproportionately suppressed as hate speech. Uh, The pipeline protesters in the Dakotas were suppressed as hate speech. And And so you've you've seen these disproportionately uh, onerous effects on the speech of, again, uh, historically discriminated against people on platforms like Facebook. Uh, And this has caused you to argue that although Facebook isn't subject to the First Amendment, it's a private company and has broad latitude to enforce speech uh, as it wishes, that they ought to apply uh, a First Amendment standard or something very close to a First Amendment standard. And uh, this encompasses your whole notion of there are all these other remedies, counter speech is available on Facebook, um, that are better ways to go about policing speech in that form. Thinking through Facebook, a couple of counterarguments occurred to me. Um, one is that maybe the internet and social media are just a fundamentally different landscape than anything we've seen before and that we're used to in, in these analyses, that anonymity uh, on platforms that allow it, like Twitter, reduce the informal stigma that helps to uh, serve as counterspeech, that tamps down hate, um, and that the internet helps fringe haters reach one another and organize in large numbers. Uh, Perhaps people would naturally gravitate toward platforms where those people are shunted off insofar as they're offered, and so allowing them on something like Facebook would basically destroy it as the civic commons that we want. Um, There's also the question of whether social media, uh, because it gives a a sort of mass... uh, a mass media effect to any individual, uh, whether it changes the calculus of emergency speech restrictions because an individual can accomplish something that a newspaper or a radio broadcaster could have only done before. And so you think of something like the Rwandan genocide where there were radio broadcasts that were stirring up hate uh, against an ethnic group. 
And perhaps it doesn't take a radio tower to do that anymore. So how do you think about these kinds of concerns when you think about social media and uh, the restrictions that it should have, not only for the United States, um, but thinking about trying to write restrictions from Silicon Valley that are going to apply in Rwanda, that are going to apply to other places. Well, I would think of um, the situation in Myanmar with the Rohingya as another distressing example. So these are all really important questions. Uh, there are several separate ones, but I'd like to start by saying, uh, it, even more accurately than saying, a free speech and counter speech and other non-sensorial tactics are better than censorship. I would say they are less bad. In some ways, I'm looking at what is the lesser of two evils here. Would we rather empower either government officials? And let's face it, you asked me, what is hate speech? We know Donald Trump has said that taking the knee is hate speech and burning the flag is hate speech. So uh, would we rather empower those who are in official positions or those who uh, private sector companies that for uh, all practical purposes have enormous power over our communications? Would we rather entrust them to make these inherently subjective decisions or would we rather try to respond with our own voices? And as with all media, they are simply as the word suggests, a means of communication, and the content depends on the rest of us. So the, the very aspects of social media that you stress, such as the ability to reach a worldwide audience, the ability to do so anonymously, yes, it does make it easier to purvey hate speech, but it also makes it easier to purvey anti-hate speech and counter-speech. And, and it also makes it easier to study what forms of counter-speech are the most effective. And to their credit, some of the online giants, including Facebook and Twitter, have enlisted uh, academic researchers to study precisely these questions. And I am enormously heartened. Uh, it's very preliminary research, but it's very encouraging giving examples of even confirmed hate monger leaders of alt-right and other hate organizations who have been persuaded uh, to come to the other side. And in fact, I have to mention here at the Ideas Festival, I saw in the second session one such person, uh, Christian Picciolini, who was the founder and head of a vicious, violent um, uh, white supremacist skinhead group, and 20 years ago was weaned away from it and is now dedicating his entire life for decades to. First, he founded an organization called Life After Hate, and now he has another one that that's worldwide. So I think we can harness the power of these uh, technologies to amplify the anti-hate message effectively. I'm very hopeful, I should say. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Have you heard of our Offstage series? In a collection of intimate interviews, our Aspen Ideas Festival speakers step offstage and take over the podcast. Public radio host Joshua Johnson sits down with a rabbi, an imam, and a Methodist pastor for conversations on spirituality. Where are you seeing progress, at least in the work that you do? 
in interfaith work? Are there certain kinds of connections that are proving the most fruitful or that are opening people's eyes? Yeah, you know, interfaith, I think, is a key component to being able to dismantle a lot of the inequities that we see taking place today. Find Joshua Johnson's interviews and other offstage conversations on your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Let's get back to today's discussion. Here's Connor Friedersdorf. You're a former head of the ACLU, uh, an organization that famously defended even the rights of Nazis to march through uh, the streets. And since the rally in Charlottesville where someone was killed, there's been tremendous pressure on all free speech organizations and especially within the ACLU to think about when exactly do we want to defend the rights of speakers? Would we still defend Skokie today? Does it matter if they have guns? Uh, The journalist Wendy Kaminer just published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where she got a hold of uh, internal documents at the ACLU where they set forth, okay, here's what we think about when as an organization with lots of competing values we're going to spend our time and resources uh, standing up for free speech rights. And I want to read you a quote from her piece. The speech case guidelines reflect a demotion of free speech in the ACLU's hierarchy of values. Their vague references to the serious harm to marginalized people occasioned by speech can easily include the presumed psychological effects of racist or otherwise hateful speech, which is constitutionally protected, but contrary to ACLU values. Faced with perceived conflicts between freedom of speech and progress toward equality, the ACLU is likely to choose equality. If the Supreme Court adopted the ACLU's balancing test, it would greatly expand the government power to restrict speech. Uh, I I don't know if you've read the same documents as she has, but I'm curious, as a former head of the ACLU, um, do you share her view uh, that the ACLU is moving away from the traditional role it's taken in defending free speech? Uh, Fortunately, I disagree. But before I say why, since you mentioned Charlottesville and the violence there, I hasten to underscore that the violence that the tragic, horrible violence and deaths that occurred there were not because there was too much free speech, but because there was too little law enforcement. And that has been documented by an extensive report that was done by an independent commission appointed by uh, the city council there. And I'm happy to comment more if people have questions. On this issue, um, the internal document that's now uh, public that that Wendy uh, mentioned was uh, had nothing to do with whether a case should be taken, uh, that criterion, but rather when we take a case defending freedom of speech, even for anti-civil libertarians whom we are fighting against in our civil rights cases every minute of every day, how we should do so in a way that makes our advocacy more effective. Uh, So, for example, explaining to the public and to the media, and even within our own internal ranks, where I'm not at all embarrassed. There's dissent and debate in a free speech organization. One has to welcome that, uh, that to explain that we are not defending the idea We are defending the freedom to express the idea. That might seem 
as if it goes without saying. Voltaire's or the famous statement ascribed to Voltaire, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Public opinion polls today indicate that a distressingly high number of members of the public uh, disagree with that and, th- and, and say that uh, to defend freedom for racists is as bad as being a racist yourself. So we have to explain why that is not the case. We have to give examples of where the principle that we're defending in Charlottesville may immediately, in that context, redound to the benefit of the alt-right. But the very next day, it is going to redound to the benefit of a pro-civil rights uh, demonstration. So, and, and, and that's a point we made way back in Skokie. And dissent within the ACLU is not new. When we defended the rights of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town with not only many Jews, but many of them were also Holocaust survivors. This was in 1977 to 1978. The ACLU lost 15% of our members. So this is always a difficult message for people to understand. They say, why are you defending Nazis? We're not defending Nazis. We're defending a principle. And in that case, we pointed out that uh, just a few years earlier, the very same principle had been deployed by the ACLU in Cicero, Illinois, to defend the free speech rights of Martin Luther King and civil rights demonstrators whose messages were as hated and loathed and feared uh, and viewed to be insulting and offensive and dangerous by the community in Cicero, Illinois, as the Nazis' message was in Skokie. So if Wendy's critique were accurate, I would be the first ones on on the rampart, but uh, I'm glad to say that uh, it's not an accurate critique, but I so love the opportunity to uh, discuss this, so thank her for airing it. Okay, we're we're getting to the point where maybe we should start taking questions. Does anyone have uh, first, uh, and again, any questions are welcome, but first, does anyone have a hate speech law or restriction that you would like to see passed that you would like to present for, uh, for discussion. All right, well, I'm going to give you one to okay. kick things off. Um, and he didn't tell me this in advance, so it's off the top of my head. So Germany uh, famously has laws against denying the Holocaust mm-hmm. uh, reflecting their particular history. And you can think of the particular history of the United States and the sorts of uh, similar laws that, that you might have here. Uh, it could be that you had a law that similarly forbade denying uh, the uh, extermination of Native Americans yeah. right, in the early times of our country. Uh, you could even imagine a time in the future when some fringe movement started denying the existence of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one category of laws that you could have. You could also have a category of laws that said... I think today we have people saying it was voluntary, right? Yeah. And, that's the denial. And uh, on the other hand, you have racial slurs that in the United States, because of our history, uh, have particular power. And, and I think no one would deny that. Uh, so you could have a narrow law targeting uh, just the N-word, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you could have just the five worst slurs. Uh, mm-hmm. you, could, you could imagine someone coming up with them. And of course, mm-hmm. it might not be perfect, but uh, lots of laws aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. So what would be wrong with those sorts of relatively narrow restrictions that don't seem like they would impact most of the political speech we engage in to uh, debate the future of the country, 
but that would recognize symbolically those things as particularly important in our history and uh, maybe symbolically reflect the importance of their never being repeated or the importance of learning from that history. Uh, And I'll I'll fasten on the last part of what you said, Connor, because I have many objections, but I think the most central one really goes back to John Stuart Mill. If we are to accept an idea or even a fact uh, as true, we really have to go through the process of thinking it through, not just accepting it reflexively as rote dogma, right? So we've seen, for example, in Germany where there, and and throughout Europe, there are laws against Holocaust denial. Uh, There are shocking statistics about how many people do not, especially young people, do not even know what the Holocaust was or what Auschwitz was. But when you are forced to actually grapple with it, to see uh, denials countered by actual specific factual evidence, uh, it takes on a dynamic living, breathing meaning. And I can tell you, uh, I went through this experience myself in writing the book because one of the new questions that has been asked with increasing urgency on college campuses is why should speech be treated any differently from any other kind of conduct. And I agree, speech is, a, you know, it's expressive conduct, right? Uh, and, and that's something that I pretty much had accepted as a truism. And being asked that question and being forced to grapple with it, even though I thought it was clearly off base, uh, but being forced to try to come up with an answer that would persuade somebody who had not previously been persuaded made the idea of, of, of freedom of speech as a special value much more meaningful to me. So precisely because we must never lose sight of those historic facts. This even happened when Kanye West recently said that slavery was what, you know, he said some positive things about slavery, right? And as a result of the debate that that uh, instigated, I learned some things that I had not known before. That, uh, for example, until shockingly recently in our history, the accepted textbooks that were used for American history courses in high schools around the country taught that that slavery was actually positive. So I learned something uh, that re- reaffirmed my, my zealous advocacy. So we have microphones that can go around. If anyone has questions, raise your hand and we will get one to you. I'm uh, John Bradar from WGBH in Boston. And um, I was in a session this morning with Tim Wu. And he, he made a very interesting point, And I wonder what your reaction to that would be, which is at the time of the framing, the First Amendment, Speech was expensive and scarce. It cost a lot of money to print things and, and get the message out. And now it's cheap and some would say overly abundant. <laughs> Do you think that that means we should revisit the amendment for our times? Well, you know, I'm, I, and I've, I'm very familiar with Tim's very intriguing arguments, which I, I've read before. And, you know, the first thing that occurs to me when I hear that speech is too abundant. I think of Mae West's famous line when she said, too much of a good thing is 
an even better thing. Uh, and, and so, and, and John, I have to say that the argument in my book is based not just on the First Amendment. In fact, that's really sort of a byproduct. I'm arguing based on principles of not only individual liberty and democracy, but also equality and dignity and inclusivity and diversity and societal harmony. I believe based on actual experience that the robust free speech that the Supreme Court has in some cases protected under the First Amendment is the least bad way to actually, or the most likely way to achieve all of those goals. Uh, and the reason I say the First Amendment is a byproduct, as, as, uh, as um, uh, was indicated by Connor's uh, earlier questions, I make a serious plea not only to uh, private companies that are not bound by the First Amendment and to other countries that are not bound by the First Amendment, that for these other reasons, they should still adhere to the, it, the values that it has protected. Do we have other questions? When listening to your reflection as to how the ACLU protected the neo-Nazis, I began to remember that just maybe 50 years ago in this country, discrimination based on the color of your skin was legal. The Holocaust was legal in Germany. And even today, I know in Texas, as in many parts of the country, discrimination based on LGBT and your sexual identity or orientation is legal. And at the national level, it still is too. Yes. And so my question is, where exactly is that gray area, in, according to the ACLU and to your point, as to where the morality of a law and the necessity of holding the legal standard, and how can we manage that? So we always have to be attentive to both. We are simultaneous. So the ACLU's mandate, which I take as my personal goal in life, too, to do whatever I can, is to uh, promote and defend all fundamental freedoms for all people, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, even if the Constitution itself doesn't apply, we think that you are entitled to certain fundamental rights, and we will use whatever legal tools are available, Uh, and when legal tools aren't available, we will use advocacy, right? So today we lost a case in the Supreme Court, some of you may have, have read, and we don't then just, you know, roll up the tents and say, okay, we give up. No, we're immediately talking about what's the next strategy that we can pursue, and it could be legislation. Um, since you mentioned, and it's, it's many people don't know this, that it's still legal in this country to for an employer blatantly to refuse to hire somebody on the basis of sexual orientation. Fortunately, many states and cities have outlawed that, but as a federal matter, you can get away with it scot-free. Uh, and the gay rights movement is one that uh, really exemplifies what all human rights movements have, that because they don't have majority power, they are especially dependent on a robust freedom of speech. I quote in my book, for example, Jonathan Rauch, a great gay rights leader who says, you know, it's the only thing we had for so many decades and generations was our right to raise our voices, our right to petition the government, our right to band together. Over here. Um, It is of particular particularly disturbing to me that in many of our major universities in this country, um, people with opposing points of view who have been invited to speak on campus, at which attendance is totally voluntary, have been disinvited um, 
because of agitation by a, a group of students that don't want to hear it. And of course, if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to go. But what disturbs me is that universities have actually knuckled under to this with a pretext that they can't protect, they can't provide law enforcement um, to uh, control the crowd, which is a ridiculous thing. And what do we do about that to protect minority speech on campus and 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 defend against this whole notion of microaggressions, which have gone too far. I think that uh, the concerns you raise are really serious. Fortunately, there is a lot of pushback, um, including through the creation of a number of new organizations. Uh, I'll mention one that just had its first conference, uh, national conference, a couple of weeks ago in New York called Heterodox Academy, which is pushing back against the uh, intellectual orthodoxy that has overtaken and too many campuses and um, and providing uh, resources for colleges, including professors and students, to uh, be exposed to an, a diversity of ideas to counter not only the outright suppression that has occurred through uh, taking disinvitations and through shouting down and disrupting and even violence, but another problem is the, which is harder to measure, but every public opinion survey shows that it's very serious, is the self-censorship. How many people on campus are saying they dare not express their actual views for fear they will be accused of being a racist, a misogynist, or so forth? Uh, and when I mentioned other new organizations, Ronnie, I think to me especially heartening are the ones that are being created by students, right? There is a hunger on campus. I really think the students who are disrupting are a minority. They're a disproportionately effective minority, but we have a rising on campuses around the country, something called Bridge, uh, students that are coming together, bringing together people for, with different political perspectives, with different uh, personal backgrounds, precisely to engage in civil discourse, not at all papering over disagreements, but uh, not refusing to engage with people just because you have disagreements. So the kind of pushback that you raise in your question, I think, is having a positive impact. Other questions? This has just been great. I have wanted to stand up and cheer repeatedly as you've been speaking, so thank you. I wouldn't but, censor you. <laughs> but I, 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 something I do find disturbing, there was a recent Varke Foundation poll that was done na- uh, globally, actually, but the results for USA were disturbing. They polled Americans aged 18 to 21 and asked them whether they agreed that people should have the right to nonviolent free speech in all circumstances, even when they are saying what they are saying is offensive to minority groups. Forty percent of Americans age 18 to 21 disagreed with that. And when the question was asked about religion, it was still 45 percent disagreed with that. And so it's concerning for me that almost half of Americans age 18 to 21 are disagreeing with these basic tenets of free speech. Do you find that troubling? And if so, what's to be done? I find it troubling, but I also think that there is an unwarranted 
demonization of today's college students and young people because I have looked back at public opinion surveys throughout the decades and I've also looked at public opinion surveys of older people and there is a consistent resistance to defending freedom for the idea that we hate. I'm quoting Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, but he said that in dissent, let us not forget. Uh, So again, I want to remind you that as long ago as 1977, as stalwart a group of free speech defenders and older people, namely ACLU members, 15% of them resigned in protest over Skokie. And I think there's just a natural human tendency to defend, and here's what I'm going to quote the title of a book by journalist Nat Hentoff, which came out about two decades ago. It was called Freedom of Speech for Me, but not for thee. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's get one last question in. With this talk that we've been having, one thing that I found uh, particularly troubling is that um, with some of the ideas that you presented, it seems like you've kind of insinuated that freedom of speech or, sorry, hate speech is different or is rather like mutually exclusive um, from the effects of what comes out of that. Um, And very often we've seen that that's not the case. A lot of people like to bring up Charlottesville, but Charlottesville is not an isolated incident. And we've seen that these kind of speech, this kind of speech actually, um, and these groups actually perpetuate violence to minority groups and a lot of other groups across the country. Should these groups still have their rights protected when we see that their ideas directly lead to violence? If it is true that speech directly incites or instigates imminent violence or constitutes a true threat, then it should and must be punished. But if you have a less direct causal connection, the mere fact that somebody says something that's hateful and then later on, even not so much later on, somebody commits a violent act, that gives too much latitude to the government to punish an idea that it dislikes. So you say, well, in Charlottesville, people were saying hateful things. By the way, they said hateful things about Jews. It was horrifying for me to listen to that. Uh, And later on, somebody's driving a car uh, and kills somebody. That's not a tight and direct enough causal connection any more than it was uh, when Black Lives Matter protesters demonstrated vociferously against police officers, including in some cases using some pretty offensive, pretty tough slurs, and I totally defend their right to say it. And we had politicians and government officials blaming those Black Lives Matter demonstrators for the assassinations of police officers, including in Dallas. And it was the same kind of reasoning, right? Well, you said something that was derogatory and discriminatory against police officers, and look, now they're being killed. So I don't, yes, if there is that direct causal connection, by all means, punish it. But I'm very afraid of loosening the connection because historically, that has been the pretext for those in power suppressing ideas on behalf of those who lack power and are challenging the power structure. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much to everyone for coming, and thank you, Nadine Strassen, for being here. Nadine Strassen was president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. Her latest book is Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. 
Connor Friedersdorf writes about politics and national affairs for The Atlantic. Their conversation was held in June of 2018 at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.